Chops TV. You will be chopped. Know what that means? Licking my chops. Today I will show you how to do a karate chop. Simply saying, no, he doesn't have the chops to do what it takes. New thing. I'm busting chops. Welcome to Chops TV, featuring Jennifer Lopez. Now here's Chops. Chops TV, Chops and J-Lo hanging out with you today, and this is going to be a spotlight episode where basically the whole thing, we cover just one subject. Well, a little bit of part one of one subject and a little bit of part two of one subject, but we'll get into release dates and what they mean or what they don't mean, but we got to see Dune uh, seemingly a few days early. Huzzah! (laughs) Yay! Uh, So Dune part two, well... Is it really early, though, when it got delayed because of the strike, or are we still just seeing it late because it was supposed to be out, like, six months ago? I'm confused. One more time? Is it out? Are we late? What I'm saying is, are we seeing it late because it was originally slated to be out much earlier than this? Yeah. So everybody's late. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Okay. If everyone's late, then no one's late. If everyone's super, then no one will be. Very good syndrome. I, I see you did the reading before we came in today. Yeah. Um, speaking of reading, that's where I wanted to start personally because you've read at least Dune. You've read a few of the other books. Yeah. And taken a look at them. Um, what's the biggest difference between the book and the movie? Because there's always they always change something, right? Yeah. So from the jump, spoilers, 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 and then so spoilers for Dune. Part one and part, part one two, yeah. And part two. Potential spoilers for the rest of the Dune saga. Those okay. first three, because those are the three that I've read. And then I got into God Emperor Dune, and it was too fucking weird even for me. <laughs> so stop that. Um, so are you interested in hearing spoilers about the book? I don't mind if there are spoilers about the book within it, but I'm more focused on, yeah, like the... You mean for the part that the movie covered? Yes, but... That I don't care about at all. No, I'm not going to read it. Because it informs so much of, like, if they do Dune Messiah, you know, if they do, you know, part three or whatever. Uh-huh. So... I'm not too worried about it. All right, so let's get into it. So the biggest difference to me was the timeline of events. So from when Paul and Jessica are rescued in the desert by the Fremen... Right at the end of the first one. Right the at the end of the first one, yeah. Um, there is a lot that happens in a lot of time. And the movie, I think, very smartly condensed all that by removing some characters, removing how like we're introduced to some characters, and uh, sort of streamlining the plot a little bit. Is that why the like northern tribes of Chani and Javier Bardem's character being from the south, is that why... They were all together. Were they kind of separate entities in the book? Or was was that group always together? Uh, Chani and that group was always together, except Chani and Stilgard are relatives. He's her father in the books. Which is, I, I mean, it's technically possible, but it is not stated at all in the movie. No. So there is, so all, I mean, we get like a quick, it's, I would hardly even call it a montage, but um, of... Of Paul's training to become a Fremen takes like two to three years. So in the span of a yep. few months, I think I think Princess Erlon says Comet 3. And then by the next time we have an update from her, it's Comet 8. So is that are those months? Is that what? Yeah, that I would. Means? Yeah. Okay. I would equate those to months. Yeah. I mean, clearly, like almost in the movie, there is. Uh, a lack of time a little bit in the second one for sure that you yeah. really because it's not I mean it's not that important how much time it took but it's clearly that it's not like a ton of years he doesn't like Paul doesn't like age a ton but now that you say that I wonder if visually they were worried about how can you signify the passing of time on a desert planet mm-hmm. there's no season changes there's no weather changes really you know like and yeah. it's not of our world too so there's not other signifiers so i wonder if they just kind of are like yeah we're just gonna kind of take it out of time and like you understand that time passes but i don't think they were worried about the specifics of mm-hmm. how long things were because it does feel like it happens in like a month yeah <laughs> and in the book we i think 
I think we get an idea of like how long it takes Paul to really become like intertwined with this culture in that one Jessica while they're still north I believe or do they come back with her anyway Jessica has Alia right Jessica's pregnant at the beginning of the movie and she's still pregnant at the end of the movie so that's obviously a big really big fucking difference because Alia plays a very uh integral part in that last battle um so alia is like two she's a toddler when like the events of um like the emperor coming to arrakis and all that stuff take place that makes a lot of sense because they still gave the character a lot of importance and they had the stuff where they could kind of both hear especially after taking the Mm -hmm. the water of life the, the jessica could really hear her but there was still like that dream connection before he had everything that paul was Mm-hmm. Getting with her, just like he had seen the visions of joining the Fremen group before. But ultimately, it doesn't feel like the baby is that important to this story in the movie. No, and she plays a really big part in Dune Messiah. So there's like a 11 or 12 year, I forget, jump Okay, between the two stories. So, so Alia Taylor-Joy will be important if they make a sequel. Correct. Um, also... Can we talk about how um, everyone was freaking the fuck out that they let her drink the water of life while she was pregnant because she didn't tell anyone she was pregnant? And they were like, oh, shit. (laughs) What? Why did that give her more of an ability to transmute the poison? I didn't quite get why her being pregnant was so important. She transmuted the poison to the older lady, right? The older Benny Jesuit. No, so here's here's what happens. That scene went a little bit over my head. So here's what happens. Whenever you take the water of life, it basically like unlocks every mental bar that you have like power-wise, right? Like you are <laughs> able that, to uh, a terrible um Scarlett Johansson movie where you only use 10% of your brain. What if she Lucy, right? Lucy, yeah. Yeah. So it's like that, but not stupid. Yeah, basically. So for the Bene Gesserit, or, you know, when you become a reverend mother, the the way that you become a reverend mother is by drinking the water of life, which was that poison from the baby worm, right? Mm -hmm. So you take the water of life, you become a reverend mother, then all of the memories are basically uploaded from like past generations of Bene Gesserit reverend mothers. So like you have centuries worth of knowledge right all of a sudden right so it's like a very like traumatic experience. i got that part yeah so because she's pregnant and she sort of like transfuses the poison or whatever to make it like not poisonous to her or whatever uh-huh. anyway it gets absorbed by the baby then the baby has that cognitive awakening in the womb so like she can remember everything that her mother remembers in the womb like she when she's being born, she will experience birth as an infant. Uh-huh. So, like, everything you're being remembered being squeezed out your mom, basically. That's pretty fucking traumatic. So, they're like, babies shouldn't do this. It's almost like the way that people treat baby vampires in a lot of, like, vampiric tales. Like, you can't change children because they can't handle it. So Okay, that definitely helps, like, clarify it. Um, it was one of those things that, like, it was, I got it, but at the same point, like, there's no way that somebody who has not read the books can watch one of the either one of the movies through one run through and be like, oh, yeah, I get no, it. And I think that's part of smartly why they sort of like streamline that aspect of the story, because even for book readers, it's sometimes like over your head as to like what the fuck is going on. So for moviegoers, without that extra context, it's like really hard to explain that. Yeah, it's almost more, they treated it as like, hey, they're going to talk about it and show it, and then they're going to use a few examples of it then throughout the movie, but they're not going to overly explain this one, because that would take a whiteboard and an extra 30 minutes of a movie that's already pretty long. Yeah. So another way that uh, we see like the passage of time with Paul and Jessica is that Paul and Chani, their relationship uh, develops like sort of quickly in that like they're both pretty young, but they're like hardened like Fremen warriors, so like fuck waiting until you're 21 and like graduated from college to then settle down like we're like having babies so like they start smashing and like she has a kid before the confrontation with the emperor at the end and like her like alia and the baby get abducted and like the baby dies 
Okay, that's something that I also think is interesting. Now, obviously, this world could be different, but they're to me, they're treated as teenagers. But what age are Chani and Paul supposed to be? Paul's supposed to be like 17 or 18. Okay. I don't know if he's supposed to be 17 at the start of the novel. Because he's still like in school and stuff at, in yeah. the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And then is she supposed to be roughly the same age? I think. I forget, honestly, which it's been a while since I've read them. But like yeah, she's supposed to be... They definitely don't gloss over their relationship, but it is still kind of in its infancy during during the whole thing. Which and then all of a sudden they just jump to, as long as I breathe, I'm gonna love you. Which is fine. I think you get it. You can see how they would get to that point, but they do not put a ton into it. Yeah, and there is like a there is a sense of that like skepticism on her part in the novel, but it's played up way more in the movie. Where like she's the conduit for the North being. Um, much more like logical and cynical about like him being the messiah and there again it's been a while since i read the novel but um in the movie there seems to be way more of a development of that sort of like inner turmoil between the two tribes about like is he the messiah is he not like is this a bunch of bullshit um and that was like really i for me it was super welcomed in the movie because it adds like another layer yeah, and it creates a conflict upon the Fremen people on top of it. And then it makes it, it keeps alive the idea of whether or not, ooh, is he a spy? Is he really here for mm-hmm. to help us? Or is this all just part of taking us down, which is part of some of their groups? And I think it feeds into that well. And then you as the viewer also, you're pretty sure that he's going to go through all the tests, but you don't know. Yeah. And then one of the last big ones is that everybody drinks the water of life. It's like a special occasion kind of thing. So then after everyone drinks the water of life, everyone's like revved up, amped up. It's like a diluted version of it. But um, there weren't any spice orgies. No spice orgies. Which was like really depressing for me. Yeah, I thought it was funny when he was eating and he's like, there's spice in the food. And it's like, yeah, man. Didn't you learn about these people? Like this is their thing. (laughs) It's like all over the place. So what exactly is a spice orgy? Is it like you do a line of spice and then everybody gets naked? You drink the water of life. Okay. Your everything is heightened and then you just like fuck each other for fun. It's nice. It's a way to like the thing about them being like hardened Fremen is that you have to celebrate every once in a while. You know what I mean? Like. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but who needs a spice orgy when you can have a bucket of popcorn from AMC theaters? (laughs) True. You could have a spice orgy with that. We did see the viral popcorn bucket in person. It is as ridiculous in person as it has looked in any picture or any video that you've seen. We did not get it, but we were in an IMAX theater, so there was a ton of people in there, and there were people with it. A disturbing amount of middle-aged men with that popcorn bucket with no popcorn in it. (laughs) I I feel like a lot of guys who get it will, like, acknowledge the joke and be like, oh, look at this, and then, like... Put their, Later in the week, put their, they're going to try it. Yeah. I think one of the funny things <laughs> about it is, like, everybody's, like, kind of open about, like, look at this thing. Look at what you could do to it, obviously. And, like, even guys are in on the joke. But men are much less open about, like, sex toys in general. Mm. And it's funny to me that when something, like... No man would ever even, like, really bring up that they know, like, the, you know, the ones that are shaped like flashlights. (laughs) They don't really want to, like, admit that they know what those things are. But then they're all in on the joke when it's this sex, possible sex toy, I suppose. (laughs) I don't know. I just found it funny how. Men are just, like, so silly when it comes to stuff like that. Like, I, I love that men try to pretend like locker room talk amongst their friends isn't like a real thing when they're like horny young bucks. Yeah. And it's like, it's okay. Girls do it too. We know what you're talking about. Like we're talking about it. It's all right. We know that you know what a possible light is (laughs) that also is flesh. Like we get it. Okay. Just be open. It's fine. There's no shame in your game. Just like don't do anything super weird with it and we won't judge you. Yeah, and everybody's different, but there's a lot of women out there who wouldn't even think that that was weird because they probably have their own stuff too. Exactly. You want to have a spice orgy? Sick. (laughs) Let's have a spice orgy. Just use protection, right? Is everyone tested? Cool. But no, we did not get the special popcorn bucket, so. Sad. Maybe next time. (laughs) Maybe we'll have to to roll back and and go get it. (laughs) Uh, as far as the movie goes, differences from the first one to the second one, I don't know how intentional this was or if it was part of the storytelling, but 
there's because I guess now that I think about it, the whole like the spitting handshake thing or like they spit when they greet each other. That was with the Javier Bardem character because he's like a, a Southie <laughs> a fanatic. <laughs> Southie. He has just weird mannerisms yeah. that they play off as like, oh, it's a look, cultural. look at this yeah. guy. It's, it's a fish out of water type stuff. Yeah. They get a lot more of that. I would say the first hour of this movie, it does not venture into funny, but they have a lot more comic relief, which I think was welcome because the first one is very stoic and very downtrodden and for the right reasons. But it was nice to get a little bit of a break because we actually did watch both of them this past weekend. So it was nice to get that comic relief in the middle. And I think it was also to endear you to the Fremen people a little bit. That's yeah, hey, these guys are fun and kind of cool too because they're the victims in here that he's coming to, to help and take down the Harkonnen who they do not need to do any extra work to make you think are evil. No, super weird, guys. Javier Bardem did such a good job as Stilgar. Even in the books, like, him and Paul are super, like, dudes. You know what I mean? Like, Stilgar, Duncan, uh, Gurney, like, those are all, like, mentors in a way. But they're just, like, bros. And Paul just wants to be, like, a guy with his dudes on Saturday. Like, Saturdays are for the boys. But, like, instead his mom is, like, making him you know, become the messiah of these fucking people, which is, like, not a good time at first for Paul. I will say the, yeah, like, if I did have one, like, little critique, because you're talking about how they crunch down the time of his training, there's almost, like, not even follow-ups with the training. Like, there, I think there could have been a little bit more leading up to Paul riding the worm. That first mission he goes on, where they're like, go over there and then stay for the night and then come back, he meets Chani up there. But they don't really follow up on that. No. They don't even show that he returns or anything. It's just like assumed, which again, I think it works just fine. But I think, yeah, maybe they could have benefited from some of that and you would have gotten to know those characters a little bit more. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. But for the sake of time. And that's the thing, too. Like, I want to see the director's cut of this movie. I think in, in in for the case for a lot of movies, I think, is that they're stuff doesn't make it and it's for a reason i think the only reason would be time for this movie i think there's a lot of great stuff on the cutting room floor a lot of things that could have provided a lot of context for a lot of people really good just like actors work probably is in there so i would be super interested to see like a deleted scenes extended cut whatever I will say this, though. I am really glad because we talk about this with so many movies and series that we go over. Like, oh, did they make the right choice on making this a series? Or did they make the right choice on making this a series of movies or or wherever you're at? I like that this was two movies. I think it worked really well as two movies. I think the split was good. They get to the you know the old George Lucas thing. They rhyme. These ones really do rhyme. If you mm-hmm. like, think about like what happens... From like the halfway point of the first one and from the halfway point of the second one. They're very similar in how they go. And then there's the big battle and then there's he has to fight, you know, in one of those honor fights mm-hmm. uh, against somebody at the end of both movies. Uh, so I really liked that part. But I think that while I do have a little bit of I wanted to see a little bit more of these details. I agree with you. I'm so glad that it wasn't a series because I think that would have gotten bogged down. Also, this is one of those ones that I'm not trying to be pretentious. It should be on the big screen with yes. the big speakers. We mm-hmm. saw it in IMAX. I don't know if it's 100% necessary IMAX, but make sure you get a theater with good surround sound because the sound just lives inside of you throughout the entire movie. I mean, it plays a part in the actual storytelling, right? The actual plot of it. Like him using the voice and like the intensity of that. There being almost no sound in the desert until you hear the roar of that worm coming through the sand dunes. Like it all plays a part in the storytelling of this. And in the way that like if a Christopher Nolan movie came out, like I'm going to the theater to see it. If Denis Villeneuve makes a movie, I'm going to the theater to see that. Also, if Denis Villeneuve makes a movie, apparently every actor is coming to his office and knocking on the door and saying, I want to be in it. This is an uh, unfinished list of people in this movie. Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Florence Pugh, Dave Bautista, Austin Butler, Stellan Skarsgård, Josh Brolin, Christopher Walken, Javier Bardem. That's not even everybody, but that's all the characters there. Plus, that doesn't even count the famous people who died in the first one. (laughs) Yeah. Who aren't in this movie. Mm-hmm. 
it's crazy. And I was wondering if like, if was it the chicken or the egg? You know what I mean? If people heard about him doing a Dune movie and was like signing on or if the first one came out and then everyone was like, oh, this is going to be special. I mean, the first one, the cast is still so it's good too. stellar also. Yeah. I wonder too, like, I think it has to be they wanted to work with Denny Villeneuve because th- what you're signing on for, for most of the characters... Well, I mean, a, a lot of even like the ones that aren't in the desert, they have to go through a ton of makeup every time. You know, think about the Harkonnen guys. Yeah. Like how much like how much they'd have to go through each morning to film whatever scenes they were doing. But the other group is just in the desert. Obviously, there'd be amenities out there because it's mm-hmm. the real world. But like they're still filming in a desert. No, climate. it's probably miserable. Yeah. It's got to be hot. It's got to be sunny. And it's got to be sandy. Well, it's got to be. Annoying. It's got to be either super, super hot or the temperatures drop when they're, you know, in those like dunes. Mm-hmm. It probably gets really cold at night, too. But yeah, you have to yeah. deal with both. Question on that, because you mentioned the word dune. And then at the end, it's revealed that the planet Araxis was originally called dune, which was like a Fremen, a Fremen. old timey word. But dune is an English word. <laughs> And it makes a lot of sense that the planet's called Dune. Okay. I don't know. Paul's an English name. We have a Paul speaks English. Sure, but he also speaks Fremen. He learned Fremen. Sure, but he speaks it. I'm just saying. I don't understand. Like, so they, well, Dune so like, is just a word in yes, Old Fremen? Well, yes, because people, like humans, they are humans, right? Ultimately, they are humans. So, like ancient 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 humans would have known the word dune and associated it with sand and sand dunes so they named the planet dune which is an ancient word and arrakis is like the new term so colloquially they call it arrakis just to be critical for no reason shouldn't it have been a different word that means dune fucking what are we gonna do find frank herbert and shoot him in the street over it is he still alive no so I don't know. I'm that is probably not going to happen. Past <laughs> <Then. laughs> tense. <laughs> hey, Frank Herbert, great world building. Could have named it something other than Dune. Speaking of the world building, though, as I'm being just kind of, I'm just being obnoxious right there. It's fine. It just, <laughs> yeah, it just popped in my head when I was watching the movie. The world building is possibly the best I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> I'm serious. The best I've ever seen. I can't think of an example that is so much greater. Uh, Ridley Scott is like famous for being like one of the best world builders ever, and it's hilarious to like bring that up and think about it that way. Because Denny Villeneuve was pegged to film the Blade Runner <laughs> sequel, so he is totally versed in all this stuff. But they just do a great job of giving you all the exposition you need, not completely hitting you over the head with a ton of exposition, and also like leaving some of it to hey, there's still a lot of world out there. You might get an inkling of it. The biggest one I would say is like, they obviously reference all the other houses and stuff. And then at the end, they're they're coming there and they don't accept him as emperor, blah, blah, blah. But you don't really learn the names of the other houses, what their society is like, what their uh, industry Mm -hmm. is or anything. It's just that there are other families and you know that. And so that's even more world to build on. But they build a really great world. And the other thing I loved about the world building, to me... When you have something that's not Earth, that's not us, that's not modern day, like right here, right now, the almost like superhero aspects of the movie become more believable in their universe than any time they try to like ground a superhero movie in our world. Now, if you just go off completely, then you can make a fun comic book movie. But the ones that are, you know, try to make it seem a little bit more realistic, I think that works a lot better when you build the world. And so these powers to see into the future and all the stuff that that these people get i think makes a lot more sense because you've built a world where i do believe that this is the reality of this world yeah and each place that we visit even though we don't get to see much of the universe each place that we do go is unique enough and um like shown enough that they do feel alien to us you know what i mean yeah. like it doesn't look like people in like goggles and it's like oh it's 10 191 you know what i mean it, no they do feel like totally different unique cultures and planets and stuff um so i i definitely enjoy that aspect of the world building i think when it comes to movies we get a lot of that care taken with world building as far as like 
Lord of the Rings goes is a really good example of like the just like the breadth of that lore and you get to see it on the screen with science fiction it's so much harder because the technology can outdate itself like almost immediately so, like a really good one I think is Ex Machina where like we get to see like this technology that is not realized in our world yet but we don't get to see how that interacts with the outside world it's always in a very like isolated place or you know what I mean? Yeah. So, because then once you bring it to like iRobot and you put them out in the real world, it just, it kind of falls apart for you from a oh this could happen like almost in that like scarier sense of it. Yeah, and then you like get taken out of the movie watching experience. And this one, you don't really get to experience that at any point. Like you're really just like you are on Arrakis. As long as you there. accept it, because I think they do like I said a good job of explaining it. You are in this world. Yeah. This world is true, and everything they're telling you just has to be the truth. And I'm not really doubting it, because they did such a good job with it. On that, the different like cultures and stuff, the Harkonnen planet with the black sun, which just apparently just washes out all colors. And so when you're outside, like everything's in black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is very visually striking. And then I like that, no, when they're inside, you still do see some color in them. That this isn't just like a part of them they're not like this weird black and white race yeah they they just have a very strange environment so after watching the movie i decided to brush up on my knowledge a little bit just in preparation for this podcast so i could be you know a very learned wise consultant and i could be the dumb one that's like how'd they get off the worm correct um so because we were talking about this last night about the difference between the planets and like why the planet is like that the harkonnen's like destroyed and abused their planet to the point where it created that like harsh environment for them and like their black sun and stuff so like frank herbert uh part of like the story is about like climate change and destroying the environment um and like don't do that shit so the harkonnens uh play as a really good foil to caladan where uh the house of Trades is from it's like this beautiful lush gorgeous planet and then, you know, I'd be miserable, too, if I lived on a Getty Prime or Gata Prime, some shit like that. Yeah, no wonder they're angry and just want to, like, kill everybody because, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem very fun. And the most fun they have is a gladiator match, but he's fighting, like, drugged his, up people. It's his birthday. Oh, it's his birthday, so he gets to kill people who are sedated. Well, they yeah. are terrible. <laughs> they didn't need any more help, but they just keep doing it. Yeah, and they do change that part a little bit. In the book, it's like... Um, actually more like Fayed is like more behind like the machinations of like the whole fight. And then he, he like tries to kill his uncle that same night. And he's like, could you stop trying to kill me? If you do, I'll make you like the emperor or whatever. So there's, there's a little bit of like. Uh, So it's less of like a plan to do that whole thing and more of he does it to like save his life. So he does it. So in the books. What is Oil Skarsgård's name? He lives in the Black Oil. What's that guy's name? The Baron. Let's just go with that. The Baron Harkonnen. Yeah. So the Baron in the movie is the one that devises this plan to not drug the last Atreides so they can fight or whatever. And there'll be like real stakes. And if he wins, that looks great. Because then his successor on his birthday defeated this opponent, blah, blah, blah. Like the people probably think that it's um, like a sabotaged event or whatever, which it is. But so if he wins, great. If he dies, cool. Because uh, he's getting really popular. It was funny for me personally with the Baron Harkonnen. Because when they reveal, oh, he's got another nephew that might be taking over because Dave Bautista's character not getting it done, even though he yells at everybody every four seconds, but it doesn't doesn't get people done enough. He likes to break necks too. But okay, so they have another. <laughs> he has another nephew, and I was like, well, yeah, of course, this guy never got a girl and like made his own kid. No, it turns out there's a detail <laughs> about what his own kid is up to, and big spoiler, I suppose. It's Jessica, which makes Paul his grandson. Yeah. Um, here's the thing about the Benny Gesserit. They're gonna Benny Gesserit. So to recap from the first movie, which I don't know if it's picked up on a lot, but um, the Benny Gesserit are basically like a really elaborate breeding program. So every time that there's a Benny Gesserit, like, plan there's always a contingency plan also and they always want to take over the bloodline of people they think are powerful that's a big part of it because that's what they do with 
Austin Butler's character. Yes, all, their ultimate goal is to be aligned with people in power. So they have been basically like genetically breeding the right conditions for um, a person, a male, to assume like the highest form of power, which in their religion or whatever is the Kwisatz Haderach. Now, has there been a lot of time where they have been able to get the seats of power, or is that something that is finally developing for them? Because Florence Pugh's character is kind of in line to take over as Empress, which would mean that she wouldn't be married to the Emperor. She would be the one in control. And then obviously, like, the station that Jessica had made, and then would have had an heir had she made it a daughter like they wanted her to. Or have they had the, you know, a Benny Gesserit actually be the person in power? Or have they always been next to it and they're finally getting to a point where they might be the person in power? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So from what I understand, they've always been like power adjacent. I think they're less interested in being like the person in charge and more so the puppet's the puppet masters behind the scenes. And boy, are they good at pulling all the strings behind the scenes and For making sure. sure that all that stuff happens. Because yeah. I think that there's a lot better understanding of what they are and what their goals are and what they're trying to do in this one than in the first one. The first one, they just seem kind of like crazy sorcerer ladies yeah, who want to have a hand in everything. But I don't think I understood the breadth of their power and reach in that. That they're not like this like weird religious sect. That happens to have some of these powers that they are real big players in this world. Absolutely. And Paul isn't their first attempt at getting to a point where a quiz hat Tatarak can emerge. Um, but obviously, like, his is one of the most promising. So he was supposed to be a girl. And then him and uh, the non-baron, Fade Ryu... Don't know how to pronounce his name. It's so fucking wacky. But him and Austin Butler were supposed to get together and make a baby. And that one was supposed to be a boy and potentially be a Kwisatz Haderach. So Jessica really messed up plans for everyone. And she did it on purpose, too. Like, that was her whole thing, right? She was she was planning on having Paul. She never had an intention to have a daughter. Right? Well, she loved the Duke so much that... And he wanted a boy. So she said... I'm going to do this for my mans, and I'm going to give him a cute-ass boy. Should there have been any sort of flashback scene with the dad? I don't think so. I think because that moment of him in the room, in that dining room with the bull head mm-hmm. and the baron, I think it's really powerful to just leave it where it is. And like the memory is what is driving Paul and Jessica's like motivations. Um, more so Jessica's motivations for revenge in the movie anyway is like the idea of the husband, so yeah. the, the Duke. And I'm just purposely like looking for little holes of things because I am of somebody who I'm pretty sure that this is going to be like an A-plus movie for me. It was that good. Everybody in the theater also seemed to enjoy it. Like I said, on the big screen with the sound, it's perfect. The, how bright it is on the sun, but then when they, they use all the eclipses, with the sun to, to play with the lighting and the way they they do the darkness. And then also because of, especially when they're like traveling with Fremen, because they're all constantly going through like rock formations and stuff, with the big screen, you don't normally get this as much because it's the, you know, it's the smaller width of your, you know, the height of your screen is smaller than your width. They really play on those IMAX screens oh, with yeah. the height. And like dealing with you looking at something vertically instead of just at the center or maybe even left to right. They have a lot of vertical movement, especially during those traveling scenes with the Fremen. Dude, when people started to like get up and like go to the bathroom at like the worst parts of the movie to leave the theater, I was like, I'm missing stuff that's on the screen right now. You fucks need to move. It was almost too big of a screen for subtitles. Because I had to look at the bottom of the screen and maybe I didn't want to look at the bottom of the screen right now. So there were definitely a few lines that were subtitles. That I willfully ignored the subtitle because I was too entranced with what was actually happening on the screen. So one drawback of the IMAX experience, but man, all the sand stuff and the worms. I was bummed that Javier Bardem talked about all the other, the, the trapdoor spiders and the large and small centipedes. The small ones you have to worry about and he holds his hands up about two feet apart. Obviously that would be a huge centipede in our world, but we never got to see him. No, uh, I yeah, thought for sure a Harkonnen was going to be taken out by a trapdoor spider or something. 
and oh, they were going to be huge. You don't like when they do that also in movies. When they reference the, something. Like, yeah. Well, because then, then I'm like, ooh, this has been brought into the world. Let's, okay, let's see this. What What is this part of the story? But no, they, they didn't bring them up. But they could. They if they could. make other ones. They could. I don't know if they should make more. That's controversial take. And they left the second one on a cliffhanger. However, I think in order to tell the story in a really full way, you need to make the other ones. I'm worried that like Denis Villeneuve is going to get burnout after the second one and then like leave it to some schmuck for the third. I don't know. Michael Bay might direct the third. I don't think they'd go to that. Like the Dune part three. Children of Dune. I mean, it could work out in a really cool way that he can hand it off to somebody who is going to do a good job with it. I mean, so I was talking about Ridley Scott earlier and the alien world building has gotten huge now, but especially in the first one, it's really good. And the second one, he handed it off to James Cameron. And the third one is directed by David Fincher. So I'm not saying that it's easy to find that kind of lineage because the, the the latter two directors in that were not who they are now when they were given the reins for this. James Cameron a little bit. He had made Terminator and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it, if you could find something like that, then I'd be for it. But you're right. Is this going to be a Warner Brothers takes over and it turns into a who's the hot young director? Let's give it to them. And they have to make exactly what we want to make because we think this works. This is a movie that should not be touched by executives trying to figure out what works for people and everything. No, right. Make the story that was written down. Yes, adapt it. And some things have to be cut and some things have to be changed. That's what happens when you take something from a book to a movie. But I don't want the, I don't want David Zaslav coming in and seeing the, the dailies and being like, actually we should change this. There should be more love scenes between these two characters. People love love. Freaking studios. Yeah. The studios, if they had their way, we wouldn't have gotten like, Alia in the womb. They'd be like, this is too weird for mainstream audiences. Like, we cannot put this in here. Yeah, they probably would have only... They'd be like, well, why not? Anya Taylor-Joy signed on. We can just have her show up in a in a dream sequence every time. And then that actress is in the movie more and we can market it more that way. That does sound exactly like something <laughs> an executive would do mm-hmm. at a major studio. I did like the world enough that I wouldn't hate it if there were more, but... It is hard to think that the quality would be as high as these ones. Would yeah. it Would it be better if... I'm trying to think, like... Because I like... I, like I said, I like the, the... It was two movies. But would you rather than a series for the other stuff? Now... So they can tone it down a little bit. That it doesn't have to be as expensive and huge and escapey because like we've seen we've seen that we know what that can look like in this world but what about if you get more into the characters in those stories that might be better because i mean how many books are there oh my god like 20 yeah so this is not a game of thrones situation where you're gonna run out of source material either no and i think when people not most people but i think for like an average sci-fi fantasy like epic reader um, a lot of the times, like, Dune is thought about in, like, a trilogy. So, like, obviously, like, Frank Herbert didn't write 20 books. Like, that was, like, um, like his estate and, you know, his son, like, picked up, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, but those first three are really, like, a full, a fully, like, realized trilogy. Yeah. And then, like, that God Emperor Dune is, like, a capstone. And that's when it it really goes, like super super zany a little bit like too inaccessible i think for like the average reader um you have to be like really into the source material to like buy into like all the zany shit that just goes down in god emperor dune even in children of dune yeah because it's like well and i'd be nervous and the way you explain that i would be nervous then about a series because i do not think that the cimmerillion or whatever from J.R.R. tolkien and that being brought into a series by amazon was done well at all. No, it's really, really bad. So, yeah, I don't I don't know what the answer is. But I, I just want to see more uh, Denis Villeneuve Dune. That's what I want more of. I just want to see more Denis Villeneuve, period. Oh, my God, just yeah. Make more movies. Also, buddy. that, too. You don't want him to get burnt out and bogged down. And then it's like 15 years until we get another new project. Like, he's just doing too good of work right now. Yeah, I mean, it didn't quite happen from a director standpoint from like the MCU most people were able to break out, but obviously there were actors in there who kind of got stuck that like half of my year every year 
is going to be making sure that I'm in either the the movie I'm in or the movie where I'm a, a side character because they're all interconnected. And I don't want that for Denis Villeneuve, but I and I also don't want those for all those actors too. I well, would like I don't want these people all tied to Dune for ten years. Part of the reason why it's like a fully realized trilogy those first three is because then after the third one, most of the characters that you know are gone. Because it's like thousands of years in the future mm-hmm. that fourth one takes place. So, what's a, is there any explanation in the books, or is it just because of the time that they were written and there's only so much technology you can realize? Because I like the idea that it is more advanced, but also less digital than we are currently. But clearly, interstellar travel and all the stuff that they're doing very highly advanced. The dragonfly wings for the planes look really cool. I'm not sure if, from like an actual like engineering standpoint, if that would ever work or ever make any sense to build something like that. But do you think it's because it was written at a time when you didn't have an idea really of what technology would become, or is that just more of an intentional choice of like this is the technology in this world? I think for the movie, it's more of an intentional choice with the books. Like there are there are things called like mentats, which are like human computers, basically. Um, And they go into like more of like the space guild and like how that, you know, science works and that tech works. And, you know, that's in the first one. The guys who like roll their eyes back and do calculations. Right. There's a few of them. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot more of that sort of like deep dive explanation exposition that you could get into. But I think for the purposes of the film, it would just like bog it down way too much. So the technique, the tech is what it is. And I think we just like roll with it. Yeah. Cause we were talking post movie kind of about this too. And like star Wars was just made in the seventies. So they kind of had to stick with like, that's what the technology looks like in this universe. But I like it because it actually worked in their favor because now newer things don't look as dated because it's just what it is. So I think that also helps with the with these Dune movies. As they age, they'll really never look like out of date because they already do look out of our time mm-hmm. in, well, in a way. Also, too, like Arrakis is a really like desolate planet for the most part and backwards on purpose so that the Space Guild and the Emperor can take advantage of these people and like take the spice and stuff. So that is another part of it, like why maybe theirs looks like more archaic than say like when you go um, to Gata Prime or whatever and like they have the big arenas and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I was going to say something and I totally forgot. Well, while we're on the technology standpoint, they do have nuclear weapons. I did not know that until they, I, maybe they reference it in the first one and I, and I forgot about it or I missed it when we watched it over the weekend. But uh, all of a sudden there are nukes and then they use them. Yeah. <laughs> And he threatens to use him again. He um, once he drinks that water of life, he he shows a lot more cojones as far as his decision making goes. I mean, okay, so let's think about it. If you're Paul, I take the water of life. I am now a man removed from time and space. What do I have to lose? You know what I mean? Like, I I have omniscient visions of the future now. So like, yeah, you want to play ball or what? Because I can I can stop the whole spice trade right now. And I th- I think that's a little bit if, if a critique from like what was missing that was included in the book is like the stress about the spice guild. And part of the reason I think why you don't need to like explain the tech is because like Frank Herbert very, very smartly um, the driving force behind this like entire like space travel economy or interstellar economy economy is the spice. So like if you remove the spice, then the whole system collapses. So you don't really need to know much like in depth about the tech as long as you know that the one commodity that Paul now has control over is in jeopardy, basically, unless they do what he says. It's interesting, too. I like a lot of the stuff. I think still works. And, you know, this is not reading it from the book. So maybe the book details are just different enough. But you can totally see how it's of its time and like the allegory for all these things, the spice and the way they're fighting. But it also still works kind of on modern day type stuff because people are people are people, I think, is the, the real answer there. But I just like the idea of, you know, when this was written back in, you know, coming out of the Vietnam War and everything like the Fremen have that very, like, this is our home turf guerrilla warfare type deal, even though they are out, 
outmanned, outgunned, outplanned, sort of the Hamilton reference <laughs> there. Uh, but they they have that advantage of being on their home turf and they use it to their full ability. And then there's like almost like the comment, like it's like 300 at one point. He's like, you're doing this with 200 guys. Imagine if you've got the millions of Fremen that are available. Crazy. He's like 200. Gurney is really fun in this movie, too. I didn't like him as much in the books. People like him a lot. Yeah. I'm like, eh, I'm soft on him. Whatever. But he was really fun in the, in the I think it's Josh Brolin. Yeah. Anything yeah. more you'd like to add? Um, just this last part, you were talking about that the action in a war isn't really the point of the movie, the but they're like super fun, cool. Though. I think that will be a hook for most people in the second part is that, oh my God, the action is insane. It's like beautifully done. Technically an, an incredible film. I would love to know the composites of what is real and what is helped by CGI and what is a model and how they did it. Everything. I would love to know how they put all this stuff together because it can't all be CGI. It looks too good at certain points, but it can't all be real. They couldn't have built these spaceships and blown them up. It's mm-hmm. so I, I would love to know like what all went into each shot for those kind of big action-y scenes. Me too. That's what I mean. I can't wait to see like the behind the scenes or whatever of this, but um, yeah, you were right about that. Like, it's not really about, like, the action part of it. It's not really about, obviously, like, the war plays a big part of it. But um, in between those time periods, like, there's a whole, like, jihad that happens in Paul's name. So, like, it's not even really about that. So if it's not about those things, then what is it about? Um, for Frank Herbert, I think, well, I don't think I know this. So one, it's about, like, climate change. Um, and us like destroying the beautiful like gift of this planet that we've been given. He was like a very big like ecologist. Because um, they say that Arrakis is this like lush green paradise, but then they started doing all this spice stuff and actually wanted it to remain a desert so that the worms could live and create more spice. Yep. Also like our dependency on our natural resources. So like draining like the life of our planet and stuff like that. And then... Ultimately, in reference to Paul being the protagonist, it's about like beware of your heroes and you should really like think critically and like trust your own judgment about things. And like we see that through Chani, I think, in this second part where she doesn't she is not being she's being spoon fed this idea by like Jessica and the Benny Gesserit. Um, but there's like a whole clan of people who are like, this is how they control us with this like made-up prophecy um and the fact that paul like you're rooting for paul to win right ultimately because you because i mean like you said you're endeared to the fremen they're like a marginalized group of people that are being taken advantage of because like of this planet like and they've like let this planet get to this point just so that they can have more spice so it's like a desolate planet all they really want is um like a more habitable place to live right so it's like very baseline desires and wants so you want paul to like be able to provide that to those people the fremen aren't fighting for the spice trade they're fighting for their home right and they don't they would get rid of the spice they don't care about selling it and making all the riches in the world they want the lush green paradise that this planet is supposed to be right so like you want paul to win jessica wants paul to assume power in this movie um however paul knows that with that power once you take the water of life, basically, um, that these awful, awful things are going to happen in his name, right? So, like, sure, you have, like, your messiah figure, but at what cost? Because then, like, a jihad's going to happen where, like, 61 million people, like, low. That's a low guesstimate of, like, how many people die after the events of Dune happen. So, like... You're rooting for this guy to win, but like him winning means the destru- the destruction of like countless, countless of lives across the universe. Untold amount of peril in his name. So the secret is that no matter who is in power in this world, it's going to be bad. Basically, not not basically. It's more about like, um, maybe not that person is going to be bad, but just the idea of emperoring over this whatever part of the universe is just not going to work and that it should be more of the Fremen type of like 
We yeah. have your own land. We don't yeah. need to keep cultivating everything. Yeah. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. Is ultimately, I think, the metaphor that he's going for with Paul. Yeah. An absolute podcast. Uh, Crush. Podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, everybody. You just got Dune by Chops TV. <laughs> I love talking about Dune. I will talk about Dune for hours. It's like, and that's what I love most about this is like the reluctant hero trope is usually like, oh, guy doesn't want to like pick up the sword because, you know, or, you know, like, uh-huh. God, uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. Hero's journey, it gets thrust upon them. They're yeah. not looking for it. Yeah. yeah and they're going to like save the day and like they'll save the planet or whatever. from Act like the planet! From like the evil guy. But in this one, the reluctant hero probably should just stay reluctant. Because even though this is bad, that's also really fucking bad. How many people do you think are going to get my hackers reference there? Probably a pretty low amount. Barely two. Barely two? Bare- maybe All right, one. If, you, if you got my Hack the Planet Barely reference two. to the 1990s movie Hackers, please let us know. <laughs> At underscore Chops TV. Same handle on TikTok as well. So if you like the, the show but have missed a few episodes, we post clips there. As well, but please give us a uh, a follow, like our tweets, do something. It would be nice. Like our TikToks. That's a fun one to get. Yeah. Overall thoughts? Uh, it's going to be nominated for Best Picture in 2024's time. Correct. Frame. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. Um, I think believe the hype. I think the hype around this movie is real. Bo asked me today, can I see it without seeing Dune Part 1? And the more I thought about it, I was like, probably... In a weird way, because if it might just be over a lot of people's heads in a lot of ways that like they're not even like it's so much stuff, but you should see the first one. Well, the whole movie is what are we fighting for? Right. Yeah. What are the stakes and what are we fighting for? I think there's enough good and bad that you would understand the story and like on its base level and I think would still be entertaining because it looks so great. Mm -hmm. But our podcast is not going to be a good companion piece if you have not seen both movies. No, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, that's all we got for you this week, everybody. We're going to be on vacation next week, but we're trying to get out our top 10 list for the Oscars. So we are getting through it. We have one more to watch, and then we're going to try to get that out to you. So that's why we'll be gone. And then two weeks time, we'll be back from overseas. So Mm -hmm. we're about to go on vacation. So, don't tweet at us. Don't. <laughs> no, you can still hit us up. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget, fear's the mind killer. Chops TV is made possible by people who subscribe to podcasts and viewers like you. 